All right, everybody. Let me have uh, you open to page 35 with me. And thank you, Ted Lee. Thanks, guys. You, guys, this is my secret power. I, it's, Samson, anybody? Come on. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. Appreciate your encouragement. Um, we're going to take a little more time to explore this idea of, of a union in Christ. Um, go ahead and read with me here. Third sentence, second line, says First uh, Corinthians 6.17. He that is joined to the Lord is one in spirit. Jump down a little bit further after that sour quote. Through the new birth, we become bona fide members of God's family, Ephesians 2.19. Children of God, 1 John 5.2. Partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. Born anew of God, 1 John 5.1. Uh, and then um, Paul's dramatic questions in 1 Corinthians 6.2-3. Don't you know that someday we are uh, we Christians are going to judge and govern the world. Don't you realize that we Christians will judge and reward the very angels in heaven? And then again, Ephesians 2.15, the new man, this idea of the new man, the new humanity. And I love actually, I want to read that full quote because I love the idea that he, he uh, he's talking about here. So let's just jump to the beginning of that paragraph. Here is a completely new, unique, and exclusive order of beings. There is nothing like it in all the kingdoms of infinity. This is the order of beings that God envisioned when he spoke the world into being. This is the order of beings that Paul called the new man, the new humanity destined through the new birth to reign with Christ. They form a new and exclusive royalty, a new ruling hierarchy who will also constitute the bride, the lamb's wife. This order is divinely designated to be co-ruler, co-sovereign, co-administrator, and partner to the throne by virtue of redemption and wedlock with the king of kings. This isn't totally applicable to what we're going to talk about, but I just feel depressing to, to uh, for a second, explore this idea that um, Jesus' message, the gospel message, is really radical. Throughout the New Testament, it's it's such a shock to people, um, especially Jesus' words. I, When we were in South Africa, one of the things I kept telling the kids is that Jesus was um, a revolutionist like uh, Nelson Mandela, because he truly was. He he is this guy who steps up on the scene, and he, you know, not only did did he reinvent what family was, what we were talking about earlier, but he blows open the kingdom of heaven. Because the Jewish listener at the time of Christ, they would have just been thinking about themselves. They would have been thinking about the kingdom of Israel, and they wouldn't have had it in their minds that the kingdom was for anybody else. And so this message, this good news, they're just thinking of it through the context of, well, this is what we get as Jews. This is our inheritance as Israelites. But what Jesus is doing, what he's saying, and even in some of the parables, he's trying to communicate, no, the kingdom of heaven is not just for you. It's for the Gentiles as well. And he just blows open the gates of heaven. And yet the kingdom of heaven is exclusive to those who would, who would choose Jesus. So it's it's exclusively inclusive. It's inclusive to everybody, but it's exclusive to those who would believe in Jesus. Obviously, we know that for some reason I just felt like I was supposed to share that. So if that hits anybody in their spirit, then uh, you trust that's from the Lord. I want to talk more about this beatific vision, though. And and uh, this is this is theological terminology. It's this idea that, again, when we, be, when we see Christ, we'll be like him. It's 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Even this idea of being children of God, this is going to be new language to most people. Because sons of God in the Old Testament is going to be more so the idea of angels. It's not going to necessarily be, it's certainly not going to be like, oh, we are sons and daughters of God. I mean, Jesus is the first person, really, to use this father language in, in prayer. This is novel. This idea of addressing God as father is something new that the disciples are learning, that the followers of Christ are learning. There's a new intimacy, a new level of intimacy in prayer and in relationship with the father. So this is something that's new that Christ has introduced 
that, that we are now children of God. Um, and yet it's been revealed that we shall, uh, what we shall be. Sorry, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, so after we die and we see Christ, when we are glorified, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now for us here, who are still living on the earth, we're going through this process of sanctification. And um, sanctification is not necessarily a term that we use a lot. It's probably familiar to some of you, but it's this idea of becoming like Christ. And sanctification is mostly the Holy Spirit's work, and I really want to emphasize that, and it's a little bit of us saying yes. Um, because, and, and the reason I say it that way, and I've got to be careful, I know that, but the reason I say it that way is because um, the Holy Spirit is going to be at work within us, whether or not we're even consciously aware of it or submitting to his work. He has already been at work. Think about before you were a Christian. The only reason why you know Christ today is because his spirit was wooing you to know him. There was a time where in your flesh you wanted nothing to do with Christ. You stiffed on him completely, and in fact, you were running in the complete opposite direction, and there was some sort of a turning in your heart and all of our hearts, but there was some sort of a turning that happened not because we willed for it to happen, not because we tried for it to happen, not because even we desired, because the flesh is, it, the flesh wants nothing. It, it's, the flesh is who we are apart from Christ. The flesh wants nothing to do with him. And so for that to be made alive, for, for the dead to be given life again, there's this miraculous work of the Spirit that he's doing. And so, so I, just, I, I even bring that up to say, even when we're not aware of what God is doing, the beauty of his nature is that he's still at work within us, which means that we can be in our flesh, in our, you know, as, as carnal Christians, we can be fighting against God, but he is still sanctifying us. He's still transforming us. But it's one thing for us to turn to the Lord and to say, yes, I will to be changed by you. I want to be changed by you. It's a beauty when our desire and our will actually align. But for us to simply turn and say, God, I see that you're doing this, and I want to say yes to you in this. I see that you're bringing these things up in my heart because you want to change these things in me. You want to transform these things. And so I'm saying, yes, that then is where we partner with the Holy Spirit in what he's already doing in our sanctification. So here are some verses on sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. You can write these down because I'm just going to kind of breeze past them. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Take note, that's, the, that's what he's doing, God himself. Um, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. So the spirit is sanctifying us. It's this God of peace himself who's sanctifying us completely so that we are like Christ, that we're fulfilling this First John 3, 2, this beatific vision, that we will be like him when we behold him. John 17, 17, this is Jesus' words. He says, sanctify them by your truth. He's praying for his disciples. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so we know that the, the word of God sanctifies us. The scripture certainly, yes, but it's also the things that the spirit is speaking to our hearts, the things that he's saying to our spirits. Hebrews thirteen twelve. therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So this is Jesus it's his work on the cross that brings sanctification. No, none of these so far have been about us. It's all about what God is doing. It's his word. It's God himself. It's Jesus sanctifying us with his blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Now this is a passive a, uh, a passive occurrence. So it's happening here. You were washed. You weren't washing yourself. You're not cleaning up yourself. And brothers and sisters, this is important for us to remember that we don't have to wash ourselves or clean ourselves up when we come to God. He's already bathing us and that's been, that's been happening since the cross. He saved us then for eternity. So as we sin, he continues to sanctify us. He continues to wash and purify us through his blood. Hebrews ten fourteen. For by one suffering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So Christ's suffering perfects this sanctification. Hebrews 1.3, 
who being the brightness of his glory, we've already read this, but who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made himself, uh, when he had by himself purged our sin, I like that, by himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of God and majesty on high. This purgation is part of our sanctification. Purgation not being purgatory. It's not something that happens when we die. It's not a place that we go to where there's this final purgation of our sin. It's instead an ongoing process that we are going through as these sons of God. There's this continual purgation of our sins, this process of sanctification. Now, of course, though, there is this problem where we see what it means to look like Christ. We've not become like him yet. We don't even know him in his glorified form because we haven't beheld him in that manner. We know that he has that, but we've never seen him in this glorified manner. But we see who Christ is. We see that he is perfection. We see that he is holy. We see that he is sanctified, set apart. We see that he is a lot of what we are not yet. And we see where we are and we see, okay, if that's what the ideal is, if the ideal is this Christ image up here, and if we're supposed to be recreations of that, representing this per- this perfect perfect person, right, this this Christ, if that's our if that is our image that we're supposed to be bearing and reflecting, then what am I doing here in my broken state as a human? Because I see that I am nothing like the Christ, that I am nothing. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not holy. I'm not glorified yet. I'm not. I, there's this huge gap. What we would call that then is the sanctification gap. It's us realizing, God, I, there's a long way for me to go through still, a long period for me to go through before I can become like you. But that is this journey of sanctification. Now, along the journey, what we can do is we can be, we can begin to despair. We can see our sin, and we can say, especially for those of you who are older believers who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Um, and I don't mean older in terms of your your age. I mean like you've been walking with Jesus a long time, whether that's you're 25 and you've been walking with him for 20 years. There, there's probably been a place where now you're, you've, you've probably reached a point where you've despaired at some point because you see how big this gap is and you go, it's hopeless. What's the point? I'm just going to go through the motions. For those of you who are younger believers, It'll probably be really exciting. You'll read the word. I remember when I first started reading through the New Testament, I started reading what it looked like to be a Christian. I became so excited about that. And that's what I made my life about. But then now that that really came with was a lot of striving, uh, a lot of performance, a lot of moralism. But I became really excited. And so some of us at certain times, we might feel really excited about doing all these good things, about being holy and righteous and, and, and doing what it looks like to, to be a quote-unquote Christian but we're going to probably reach that point where we realize that our own efforts, that we can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps all the time, that that's not quite cutting it. We typically will realize that when we realize that prayer and praying harder and praying longer and praying more doesn't seem to change our heart. And then that's where despair can set in because we say, then what's the point? But the point isn't you trying harder Spiritual disciplines, you've probably heard me say this before, but they don't transform you. What something like reading your Bible does or praying does or fasting or um, tithing, uh, any kind of spiritual discipline, going on retreat, sitting in silence, meditation, all of these disciplines, they don't actually transform us. They open us to the Holy Spirit who transforms us. Again, he's the one who's doing the sanctification it's his blood, it's, it's Jesus, it's the Spirit, it's the Father. As a triune God, he is the one who's doing the sanctification. By doing things like spiritual disciplines, praying certain prayers even some of the time, we open our heart to God. And we might say, yes, I will for this to happen. But we have to remember that he's the one who's at work here. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is, is great. We oftentimes start, stop short of uh, verse 10, though. We like the part, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, so that no one will boast. Uh, but then what verse 10 goes on to say is that we do these good works pre- that have been prepared for us in advance in Christ Jesus. And so now we start to get a picture of, well, what does it look like to go through this proct- process of sanctification? What it looks like to go through this process of sanctification is to do the good works that God prepared in us a- in advance to do. But all that that really is is to partner with Christ and to say yes to him in this work. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, I think that that would uh, agree with Scripture, certainly. Uh, what I would also couple that with is John seventeen three that this is eternal life to know to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. First uh, Corinthians 13, where it talks about the gifts ceasing at a certain point, which is when the perfection, when perfect comes, um, which is until Christ returns, because our gifts are not going to be needed, our spiritual gifts are not needed in heaven. So I think without... Because there's not a whole lot that has gone into scripture, at least in terms of uh, developing what our role, what our priestly or kingly role will be in heaven, beyond serving the Lord, worshiping Him. Um, but we're being prepared for that. Certainly, we're being prepared for we're in union with Christ, and we'll be in union with Christ. And so there is this preparation for our eternal role. Absolutely. So the only pushback I'd, well, the pushback I would give to that is that God's economy is so different than ours. Uh, heaven is going to look, and, and the new Jerusalem, it's going to look very different than what we're used to here on this earth. And the, even uh, without doing a word study, I would just be interested in really exploring what does that actually mean to judge? Because in uh, the book of Judges, you have what's called judges. It's these people who are rulers, and they're deciding manners, matters for Israel, but they're not necessarily deciding good and evil, right and wrong, though that does certainly happen. So I would just be interested to do a word study even on that and to say, what is this word actually in the Greek, though? What are the the, the connotations that are going to come with that? But um, beyond that, I would want to be open to the idea of um, 
there is no sin in heaven or in the new Jerusalem. There's only what's been perfect. Christ is the the ruler. Um, and what we experience there is going to look really different than here. Heavenly, heavenly, the heavenly economy is just going to be very different. Um, and so we in our, and what we know of earth now, I wouldn't want that to limit what heaven's actually going to look like. Uh, because I do think it'll look different, especially because we don't know what's perfect. Um, we know what's right and wrong if we can discern that, but we don't have yet this, we've never seen what's perfect. We've never experienced what's perfect. And so I think that when we do, when we behold Christ and we, we will be deepened in such a degree that, that, that more of that's going to make sense. And you're right. Certainly, you know, the thief on the cross, what I would say, coupling that with John, John 17, three, this idea of, uh, eternal life is about knowing Jesus is this, uh, this idea of like the capacity of the thief on the cross to know Christ is going to be so less than, than maybe those of you who've been walking with Jesus for 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years. You are going to know Christ so much more intimately when you enter heaven than when he entered heaven. But that's not to say that we're going to have these like, you know, uh, I know Christ to, 98% of my capacity and a thief on the cross knew him to 1%. We're not going to know that I don't believe about each other. We are going to be full, fully filled to the fullness of our capacity, whatever we can handle at that time. Um, but we're also going to be continually learning about God because God is the only one who knows all things. And, uh, and we will get to know more and more of him. But I don't believe that when we just that when we get to heaven, that we just know everything all of a sudden. I believe that we will continue to grow, that we will continue to develop this capacity for relationship with Christ. And if eternal life is knowing Christ, then I think that our role in heaven is going to be centered around that, that that's going to continue to remain the focal point is on the exaltation of Jesus, of making much of him. He is the lamb who sits on the throne um, and who who uh, is worthy of all praise. You know, just that idea that the revelation for the throne room scene, it all is centered around uh, the one who sits upon the throne. And we sit on that throne with him, um, but we also enter into that same praise. And so, uh, again, eternal life, if it's about knowing Jesus, then I think I think when it comes to our, our task, our role, and what we're going to be doing, I think there's going to be an ever-deepening of that of this capacity to know Christ. <laughs> Amen. We are too, right? Yeah. Well, let's uh let's take a look at Romans 8 um to explore a little bit more of of this process that we do go through and what we're going through currently. Um so Romans 8 starting in verse 12 says, "Therefore, brethren, we are not or we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die." But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together." For I consider that the suffering of this present time uh, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits 
for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs uh, together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, uh, uh, of, the, of who the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Another theological term, uh, or kind of an idea that's thrown out there, I guess, is this idea of the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet, this idea teaches that we are, we are redeemed and we're being redeemed. Um, it's this idea that we are saints and yet we'll be saints. It's this idea that we're forgiven now um, and we'll, we will be forgiven. It's this idea that we are in the kingdom of heaven now, but we will be in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. Um, there's certain things that have not been yet actualized. There's prophecies that are waiting to be fulfilled. There's things um, in the book of Revelation that we're still waiting for, that, but, but yet Christ does currently rule and reign here through us. Wherever Christ's body goes, that there his, his kingdom also is. And so we are the kingdom of God because we are filled with his spirit. And where his spirit is, there his kingdom is. And yet his kingdom will also be established physically upon the earth at some point. And so this idea throughout scripture of the now and the not yet, and it certainly applies to this idea of being sanctified because God looks at us and he says, you are sanctified. You're sanctified because I, I say that you're sanctified. I remember reading through through Exodus a few years ago, and I was getting really annoyed and frustrated uh, at the end of the book. And I was like, yeah, there's like the bronze like spoons, and they're holy. And there's the golden plates, and they're holy. And the bowls, and they're holy. And I, I remember reading through that and just being like, God, what makes these things holy? They're bowls and spoons and whatever. And he said very clearly to me, they're holy because I say they're holy. And you're holy because I say you're holy. And I remember that hitting me so hard. It was like a, like a, you know, a ton of bricks and just like, oh my gosh, Lord, thank you. Um, I'm not holy because of what I do, what I say, how I think, anything. It's, I'm holy because you say I'm holy. And the peace that comes from that, the comfort that comes from that, the love that comes with that, the experience of grace that comes with that, the fact that we are holy not because of what we do, our righteousness, because, but because of Christ's righteousness. And this idea playing itself out through sanctification of, of God looking at us and saying, you are holy, you are sanctified, you are set apart because I say you are. Because I looked at Christ on the cross and the fact that his blood covered your sins and that's what I look at. And the fact that he traded places with you. You've probably heard me say it before, but this idea of double imputation, not, not amputation, we're not cutting off limbs here. We're talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ onto us and our sin being imputed onto him. And the fact that we then are the beneficiaries, the recipients of that, that uh, the father's love for the son, of the father, uh, of the Christ's righteousness. Uh, that is then placed upon us. And so we are seen as sanctified, and yet we are being sanctified. It's this idea of we are in process. And what Romans 8, what we just read, is, is whom he, whom he uh, foreknew, he predestined. Who he predestined, he called. Who he called, he justified. Who he justified, he glorified. And we're going through this process. And still this, this idea of 1 John 3, 2 reigns true that when we see him, when we behold him, we will be made like him. Jack.
Oh, you, are you talking about the, the section on sufferings? Yeah, when Paul says the current sufferings are nothing in compared to the glory that's to come. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, and especially because he's addressing the church here, what he's talking about is in the midst of all this persecution, all the all the, the trials that are going on around you, um, you're currently suffering, and and that's that's the beauty I think of Romans eight too. There there's this address of like addressing the suffering that uh, that the Christians are going through, the church is going through because of Roman persecution. Um, but the joy that's to come or the hope that's to come and and the fact that our current sufferings or their current sufferings, which we, we can apply to us, whatever current sufferings we also are going through, that the what's coming is, is so far surpasses. Yeah. Uh, that's such a long discussion. Ten seconds isn't enough. I mean, you you could begin to address sowing and reaping and the fact that sometimes what we sow, well, if you sow corn, you're probably going to grow corn, right? Not cotton or beets or whatever. Um, Part of it could be our own decisions, our own devices, that uh, though you might be a good person, you might have sowed some bad stuff among your wheat and now you've got weeds growing up. So that's a possibility. Um, because, because people don't choose love. I mean, like that's, that's another really big one. Uh, when you think about like the idea of why did Adam and Eve, um, sin, uh, it's because they chose for, for a moment not to love, um, not to love God, uh, not to follow, not to be faithful, not to follow his commands. But, um, there, there's this choosing you have to you do have to choose love you know and so when people don't choose love and they have the freedom not to then they allow corruption into their heart and they will do evil things to evil people and to good people um and then there's the whole thing of well if uh if it you know how could a good god allow evil in the world how can an evil god allow good things in the world and so it's easy to flip that question as well um but if we were to just focus on love and to say, well, well, people have to choose to love and they can choose not to love, then we can come back to that and, and really just expose where, where there isn't love, there's going to be evil. Same point, he allowed all these things to be so almost like. 
actually worked out his old his his whole his 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 plan and his his, but he is, but without denying the fact that he's all God and um and all love and all uh, every all things you know good and perfect things that come from him and all this and that that doesn't subtract that he could make him evil per se you know what I'm saying and so I had a different perspective like but who are you then you know <laughs> so I just thank God that he gave me the the understanding that it's like his whole plan field he put the all the elements in there and and he did parades and bring us to Toledo's place to be at the end of the day it was all he was the glory and the title yeah i mean even when israel is given into the hand or judah is given into the hands of the babylonians it the scriptures say that that it's god who gives jehoiakim came over to nebuchadnezzar and you might read that and say, well, why would God give the king of Judah, his people, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? And uh, the, the section I'm thinking of is in Daniel when it says that. And what's great about that passage is that you, it's, it's these, in the book of Daniel, you, this book is written to these post-exilic Jews, um, or the, yeah, the post-exilic Jews who are currently under uh, Persian rule. They're still living in Mesopotamia, though. They're not yet back in the land of Israel, and they're waiting for deliverance. They're waiting to be re-delivered back into the land, and they're probably finding themselves asking, what the heck, God? I thought that you promised us this land. I thought that you had these covenants with us. Where are you? What have you done? And are you really a trustworthy God, or have you given us over to these these cruel uh, nations around us? And by Daniel saying God gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. What that's reassuring is, hey, God is in control. The gods of the Babylonians are nothing. They're still just stones. They're still just pieces of wood. They mean nothing. They have no significance. It's God who is sovereign. And so even when Scripture talks about that, it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Well, that's in conjunction with Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And then God says, okay, then if you want your heart to be hard, I'll let it be hard. And so, so there's this activity that we do see with God, but what Scripture's interested in doing, I believe, is not so much creating issues, <laughs> questions for us to debate per se, although sometimes that certainly happens, but it's actually intended for the original audience to bring assurance of, wait, wait, if God did that, so if God is the one who gave Jehoiakim over to the hand of, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, then God is still in control. Even though we are, Jews who are in exile still and we're waiting to go back into the land, okay, well, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. And so, so much of scripture we can misinterpret or misread or misapply because we're not the initial, the original audience, the first hearers of this of these words. But I would say that a lot of this is actually meant to comfort either the, the Jews of the Old Testament or the Christians in the New Testament. And so remembering that when we read is, is also a significant and important thing. Yeah, Doug.
We love Jack, everybody. I'm going to pause you guys. No, no. I think you guys are going to have a great conversation afterwards. Um, (laughs) um, And Doug, I'll give you time to think about your response too. No, you're good. Um, But yeah, we've got about 15 more minutes. So so let's get through the rest of what the book is saying and then uh, release you guys to talk because that's a great topic. It's something to be explored. If you guys want to listen, I would encourage you to go listening on their conversation. <laughs> okay, let's go to page 39. And uh, we're just going to wrap up what this chapter is really talking about. I've been trying to plant this idea throughout. It's about being in Christ and talking about our identity. Um, and, and that's kind of what what Billheimer is going to wrap up here. Um, go to that italicized sentence. And we're going to read right there. God designed the program of prayer as an apprenticeship for an eternity of reigning with Christ. Here we are learning how to use the weapons of prayer and faith in overcoming and enforcing Christ's victory uh, so dearly bought. What foes will be left to overcome in the eternal ages, we do not know. But the character acquired is overcoming here. Character acquired and overcoming here will evidently be needed when we have joined the bridegroom on his throne. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne. The crown is only for the conqueror. And the conqueror overcomes when the framework of God's program of prayer and faith. The prayer closet is the arena that produces the overcomer. Now, the reason why I, I, I draw identity from this, the reason why I draw out this, identity, this idea of being in Christ is because of recognizing that uh, we don't have any power or authority apart from Christ. Uh, just like what we were exploring before the break, um, we have to operate in Christ. We have to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we don't have anything in and of ourselves that can do that. It's all of what Christ instated to his disciples, which has been passed along to us through his spirit. And if we don't, um, if, we're, if we're having trouble with this idea of being in Christ, then what's important that we begin to do is to move into prayer about that. Um, what, I had, what I'd said at the beginning to this idea of Casting off our identities, our false identities, the things that we would would associate ourselves with, whether that's our job or our our role in our family or something else, um, it's this idea of of really beginning to spend time with the Lord to say, that's not who I am, but who I am is who I am in you. I am a child of God. Um, We've been doing, at least last week since I was in South Africa, I don't know if they've done it before, but there is that song, I'm not a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. And I love that song for our church because it's this great anthem for us to declare over ourselves that our identity and who we are, who we are is in Christ, um, that we are children of God. And what I want to again remind us of is that the only way we can even say those words, that we are children of God, is because Jesus made that possible. What I would... <laughs> What I would imagine, um, what I would suggest is that there's a lot of cliche Christianese, if you've heard of that term before, a lot of things that we say in the church um, that we say without really thinking about the gravity of it. 
Um, even, and again, even the idea of being in Christ, that can become one of those things. But what I want us to do to begin to enter into is, is to take time to actually stop and to think about those words, the things that we say so flippantly in the church, um, the Christianese type of things. Even, even like, man, even the idea of there's power in the name of Jesus, singing that song, um, it can become too commonplace for us sometimes. It can become just like, yeah, there's power. We sing about it. Woohoo. And then we never see anything happen with that. We don't see the power that comes through the, through the name of Jesus because it's just something we say and not really something that we believe. And it's good to repeat these lines, uh, repeating repetition. It gets ingrained into us. There's this really dumb game I have on my phone called uh, Frozen Freefall, and it's based upon the, the movie Frozen. And it's got these tile pieces that move around. I think it's like Candy Crush. I never played that, but if any of you played Cran- Candy Crush, it might be like that. But basically, you want to like, eliminate certain, certain colors of tiles. Now, okay, it doesn't take me much to get hooked on little games like this, and I'll close my eyes at night to go to sleep, and I see the puzzle pieces falling. I'm like, no, dang it. I want to sleep. I don't want to look at free fall in my dreams right now. This is dumb. Tetris. That happened with Tetris when I was a kid too. Ah, it's the worst. But I put it before me, and it really doesn't take much to put it before me and to start to think those things. Um, I don't have to play the game for very long. It just kind of it just happens. Um and so it is with, with oftentimes singing things. If we sing something long enough or recite scripture over ourselves long enough, our heart might start to take the shape of it because what we seem to put in front of our face, what we put in front of our heart, our heart seems to gravitate towards. That's why Jesus says, if you're a lover of money, uh, your heart's going to take that shape. You know, you're, you're going to, if mammon's your God, then you're going to love money. Um, whatever we put before our heart, that's, that's the thing that our heart will take the shape of. So if we sing something like, there's power in the name of Jesus, but we do it without really meditating on what we're saying, then it's probably going to actually be something that calluses us instead of something that our heart starts to envelop. It'll just kind of, those words will just bounce off our heart until our heart is hardened in that spot. Instead of like, wait a second, let me think and pray and meditate on, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. Because when we start to meditate on it and our heart starts to take the shape of that, then what Bilheimer is saying here, this idea of waging war in the prayer closet, this is actually, it becomes a reality, it becomes a possibility that we can then enter into. We can start to, we can actually start to wage war when we believe and when we realize how powerful the name of Jesus is. And I think, I think when people ask me, how is South Africa? And I tell them it was great. And I, I oftentimes, I'll, I use the language, it was such a sweet gift from God because he did things that we weren't expecting. Um, and I know it's weird to hear about like the demonic stuff sometimes here in America because it seems so old or weird or foreign. And it can be so hocus pocus driven that like it's it's odd, you know. And some churches are, they have like weird ways of teaching on spiritual stuff, um, and so it, that can kind of turn us off to the idea of of hearing about these things even. And that's what was so great about being a part of this team in South Africa is we went there and there wasn't the hocus pocus weird presentation of the spiritual realm. It was just like, hey, this happens here, and then we experienced it and we tasted it for ourselves. And that's why I say it was such a sweet gift from God is because it, there wasn't anything weird about it. It was just, it just is. It is this way. But as a part of that, what was so neat is that <laughs> as we were singing as a team, there's power in the name of Jesus, our hearts started to take the shape of that because we began to see it happen. We began to see the power in Jesus' name. We began to see that, wow, he actually does have the authority to break every chain the the things that the disciples came back and told Jesus in Luke 10, whoa, even the demons submit to us in your name. That's what we felt like as we were coming back in the briefing. We're like, oh my gosh, even the demons submitted to Jesus' name. But that's the emphasis, really, in your name, in Jesus' name. And if we don't have a right understanding of what it means to be in Christ, then we're never going to see things happen in the spiritual realm. We're not going to be able we've 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 got to really assent to who Christ is. We've got to be moved into that place. 
Again, lest our hearts just become callous to these words that we say. Now, Christ is going to work. The Spirit's going to work apart from our prayers. Praise God for that. Just like our salvation was done behind our back, often, you know, honestly, um, he still is at work regardless of if you pray or if you don't. But when we do, and when we acknowledge who Christ really is, and when we open to the Spirit and say, teach me more about this power, Teach me more about what does it actually look like for me to be destined for the throne. If, if the power of prayer happens in the, and starts in the prayer closet, then teach me about this person that I'm praying uh, to and in whose name I'm praying. Would you help me, God, to realize the authority that I have and the reason why I have it? Not because I did anything, but you're holy because he says you're holy. And so let's pray about that as we close tonight. And I'm going to give you like two minutes. I want, you to, I want you to actually pray off false identities, the things that you would say, this is who I am. And that could be something really spiritual. That could be, I am a prayer warrior. I'm a demon slayer. Whatever it is. Take two minutes and pray off whatever those false identities are. God, for some of this, this actually stirs up our insecurities because as we pray these things off of ourselves, we realize that we've been hiding behind these false identities to cover up things we don't like. And yet you love us in those places. For some of us, it might bring up the idea of of guilt or of shame as we pray off not just the good things in our life, but the bad things the, the false identities that we place on ourselves as maybe uh, as sinners or as people who aren't your children when we truly are or when we're when what you call us as a saint. And so it might confront some of that within us too and it, we might be feeling this internal struggle of but that is who I am but we can take heart in the fact that that's not who you say we are. And Christ, even even just I acknowledge tonight that if there was anything good that came of this for these people, 
Uh, it's not because I am wise, but it's because you are good and that you teach your kids and that you care about them. Because who we are at the end of the day, at the end of tonight, the only way that we can have this power, this authority, is because you have called us to yourself, that you created us in your image, not because of anything good in us, but simply by your, your desire, by your design, through your love. And when we fell, you chose to redeem us, not because of our righteousness, but because of love. And that you call us to yourself, you woo us to yourself. You ask us to, to take on this new identity as children of God, as brothers and sisters, as co-heirs, as co-laborers. You call us to sit on your throne, not because of what we've done, but because of the blood of Jesus that washes us. And so we, we just acknowledge that. We give you thanks and praise Christ for that. But who we truly are, God, is in you. And so would we be a church, at least, a, at least these people who are here in school of ministry, would we start to think about the things that we say? Especially the ones that are cliche, especially as we, we talk about your name, as we talk about our identity, as we talk about being in Christ. Would we not just do that so flippantly any longer, but would we be reminded by you, Holy Spirit, we invite you now to remind our soul to really take uh, inventory of what we're saying. And God, by your grace, would you allow us to feel the gravity of those words? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're gentle with us, that you love us, that you're inviting us into knowing Christ on a deeper level. And we thank you that when we're reminded throughout the day of, uh, of the fact that we aren't aware of what it means to be in Christ, that that's not meant to guilt us and to, to make us feel bad, but that it's an act of your grace to remind us to open to that. And so, God, would you remind me and my brothers and sisters here today that throughout the day when we become aware of the fact that we're, maybe, we're, maybe we're not present to that idea, that that's not you trying to beat us over the head, but that it's you just being so, so lovingly gracious with us to remind us, hey, you are my child and you're in Christ. And so we receive that blessing from you, Lord. We receive that title from you, that we are your kids and your beloved, but that that's only possible in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. If you haven't um, checked in for tonight or done your homework and, or signed, signed in and did all that stuff, then uh, be sure to do that on your way out when you stop by the computers. Thanks, guys. And we will see you next week.